It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Trustmark, featuring My Trustmark online and mobile banking. Monitor accounts and information, transfer funds, create special alerts and reminders. Details at Trustmark.com. Member FDIC. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, July 10th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a law enacted or a law repealed. The struggle over HB 1523 continues. State leaders are taking action to address the opioid epidemic in Mississippi. Find out how it could affect you. In 2016, there were enough prescription painkillers dispensed in the state of Mississippi so that every living, breathing person in the state could have possessed approximately 70 pills each during the year. And hear from professors working to make education the next step for Mississippians who have been in the pipeline to prison. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPV Think Radio. Judges from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals are reviewing petitions from attorneys working to stop HB 1523 from becoming a state law. Passed in spring 2016, the Religious Freedom Law would allow some government employees and businesses to recuse themselves from providing services to same-sex couples. It has been in limbo since Judge Carlton Reeves issued an injunction on July 1st, 2016. Last month, a three-judge panel with the Fifth Circuit reversed Judge Reeves' decision, ruling there wasn't proof the law would harm same-sex couples. Now attorneys are requesting the full appellate court hear the case. Attorney Roberta Kaplan is partner at the law offices of Kaplan and Company, representing several plaintiffs in the suit. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier, HB 1523 singles out one religious belief. In fancy legal terms, it's called a petition en banc. What you're asking for is for all the active judges on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to rehear the case. As we argued it back in Lubbock, rather than in front of a panel of three judges, this time it would be in front of a panel of a lot more, nine or more judges, which would be the full court. How do they decide what they'll do in terms of hearing these types of cases? So there's a standard uh, that applies that we wrote about in our brief. You have to argue either that the case presents questions of exceptional importance, which we did and we think this case does, or that the case is inconsistent with prior rulings of the court here of the Fifth Circuit or is inconsistent with rulings of other circuits. And we actually believe both of those conditions are true as well. What concerns you about HB 1523? 
I think what concerns me the most about HB 1523 is that it really is the first time that I'm aware of in our nation's history where a state government here in the state of Mississippi has officially taken sides on matters of very, very contentious religious beliefs and, and very divided religious beliefs, not only among Americans, but among Mississippians. And rather than staying neutral in issues of debate, which is, after all, what the founders of this country fought the revolution about, this statute takes sides, and it takes sides that happen to be very contrary to the equal dignity of gay people and gay folks living in Mississippi. And it's not true that there's only one religious view or religious people have only one view on these issues. Religious folks in Mississippi are on both sides of this issue, and the, and the government really has no business wading into that kind of a debate. And then on top of that, if the law ever goes into effect, it's going to do enormous damage to people in their everyday lives. People can be turned out of restaurants. People can be turned out of stores. High school kids could be turned down or kicked out of psychological counseling treatment. Medical services can be denied. It's, it's really a parade of horribles of what could happen if this law ever goes into effect. But the appellate court ruled that harm was not proved. The appellate panel did not rule on the merits of the law. So they did not yet rule as to whether or not HB 1523 violates or doesn't violate the Establishment Clause. What they did rule is that the plaintiffs who we have, Reverend Susan Rostowski, who's an Episcopal vicar down near Hattiesburg, and our organizational plaintiff, the Campaign for Southern Equality, that they did not have standing yet to bring this claim because the law had gone into effect. So do you think you're going to be able to prove ahead of the law taking effect that people will be harmed by it? Yes, and let me explain to you why. What the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution says is the government cannot establish a religion. What's prohibited by the Constitution is the government establishing a religion. So when the government of the United States or any of the state governments effectively endorses a religion or takes sides, effectively endorses and speaks by saying, we are taking sides in this religious debate. And the harm that flows from that speech is the fact that that speech denigrates other Mississippians. And, and by doing the speech the way the government does, by Mississippi taking sides in a religious debate, it takes sides and it harms the people who do not share those religious beliefs. So, for example, when you want to translate this to HB 1523, the bishop, the Episcopal bishop of the state of Mississippi, has taken a very, very strong religious position, Bishop Sieg, that gay people have equal dignity as a matter of, of theological doctrine. His religious belief is that gay people should be entitled to be married, not only civilly but in the Episcopal Church, and that's a matter of his religious belief. By passing HB 1523 and signing it into law, uh, Governor Bryan and the Mississippi legislature harmed Bishop Sieg because they said to Bishop Sieg, you are an outsider in Mississippi. People who hold our religious views are insiders, and you are an outsider. And under a very, very long line of Supreme Court cases, that is enough to show injury for purposes of the Establishment Clause. Well, Attorney Roberta Kaplan, we appreciate your time speaking with us about this issue. Thank you. Thanks so much, Desiree. HB 1523 also protects the belief that marriage is between a man and a woman. Ron Mattis is political director with the Mississippi District United Pentecostal Church. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier he supports the law. 
I think, as we've said all along, that the law is an appropriate balance in protecting people of faith from government discrimination. So we were supportive of the law early on, and we continue to be so. There is the argument that it is discriminatory, that it does pick out a particular group, the LGBT community, and place them in a position where they could be discriminated against. Do you see that argument at all? Not at all. What I see is this is an effort to clearly define the protections that are afforded to people of faith, basically saying that the government is not going to take sides in discriminating against people of faith for acting in accordance with those sincerely held religious beliefs. How do you feel about them pursuing this? You know, I think this is part of the process. I think the decision that the Fifth Circuit made was the correct one. They didn't rule on the merits of the law necessarily, as I understand it. They just ruled that those filing petition against the law didn't have standing. I think it's just, you know, like I said, it's part of the process. I'm confident that regardless of the outcome, the Fifth Circuit will rule that the law is appropriate. I don't think it's unconstitutional, and we're just waiting to see how it all plays out. This whole process could take another year. It's going to take as long as it's going to take, and I think it's unfortunate that there's this effort to portray the law as being discriminatory, which is not the case from our view. And, you know, we feel confident that if you look across the country at some cases where people of faith are being discriminated against and fined by their government uh, for acting in accordance with their sincerely held religious beliefs, that those cases only demonstrate the need for this kind of law. Where have you heard about that? You can look at examples, whether it's in Colorado or Washington. You can also look at examples of someone like Chief Kelvin Cochran in Atlanta, who on his own time wrote a Bible study in which in a page out of I don't know, I think it was over 100 pages, but one page he mentioned his views on, and biblical views on marriage being between a man and a woman, and uh, he was fired from his job as a result of that. And I think it's unfortunate, but I think that demonstrates, demonstrates a clear need for a law like this. You know, I think that what we all need to do is realize that this isn't an effort to define marriage. This law was merely an effort to say that people who hold a belief should be protected in their ability to live out those beliefs and not be faced with fear of discrimination. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us, Ron Mattis. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. HB 1523 cannot take effect as long as it's challenged in the courts. Eight judges on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals must agree to hear the case to proceed. That decision could take several months. Coming up, Mississippi officials are preparing for a three-day opioid drug summit. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. What activities does your group have planned this summer? How are you letting others know about them? MPB has a free way to help. Just email us now. It's events at mpbonline.org. We'll put your information on the air. Let listeners around the state know about your upcoming festivals, concerts, or other fun events. Send an email to events at mpbonline.org. We look forward to hearing from you. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. State agencies and law enforcement are joining forces to combat Mississippi's opioid epidemic. Officials are hosting an opioid and heroin drug summit this week to educate Mississippians about the ongoing opioid crisis. Medical providers, teachers, parents, treatment centers, and the community at large are invited to come and learn about the dangers of the drugs. The Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics reports over the past four years, 
563 Mississippians have died of drug overdoses. 80% are opioid-related. John Dowdy is director of the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier what's already being done. Currently in Mississippi, uh, we have an opioid epidemic, uh, much like what's being seen across the country. And uh, just to give you some idea how significant uh, our opioid problem is in Mississippi, uh, in 2016, there were enough prescription painkillers dispensed in the state of Mississippi so that every living, breathing person in the state could have possessed approximately 70 pills each during the year. Uh, you're talking a population of about 2.9 million. That's over 201 million tablets of prescription painkillers dispensed in Mississippi last year. What is being done at this point to combat it? Governor Bryant has put together an opioid and heroin study task force that has been meeting since February of this year. We are looking at ways that we can recommend to the governor that various boards and or the legislature can act in a way that would be appropriate under the circumstances to try to uh, curtail the problem that we have. We expect uh, to be making recommendations to the governor the first week in August from his uh, task force. And we feel like that uh, a lot of the recommendations we're going to be making are going to uh, be able to help us combat the problem that we have at this time. Do you have a count on how many people have died from opioid addiction? I, I can tell you that over the last four years, we've had about 563 overdose deaths uh, in the state of Mississippi, and 85% of those were opioid related. And there's a summit coming up. What is it that you hope comes out of that? Well, the main thing is we're targeting a multifaceted approach with a number of different stakeholders in this issue, uh, medical providers, treatment providers, law enforcement, lawyers, judges, uh, really any professional uh, out there in the state uh, can be a part of our effort to try to combat this epidemic. Uh, what I'm hoping we're going to do through this summit is to educate folks and, and let them know, you know what the problem is, what uh, we can do uh, to be responsible professionals in the state of Mississippi uh, to combat this problem, and hopefully we walk away from there with with some ideas and, and, and some changed philosophy in terms of how we are approaching not only treatment but prescribing habits and also uh, the law enforcement efforts. Attorney General Jim Hood says there's a false sense of security because doctors prescribe opioids for pain. He tells our Desiree Frazier the manufacturers could face charges. I'm involved in litigation with the manufacturers uh, because they lied to the doctor and to the citizenry by saying that these opioids weren't as addictive as the old opiates of old when morphine addicts were hanging around doctor's clinics in the 30s and 40s. They're just as addictive. They did no studies, and that's what bothers me. They, they didn't do any studies to prove it was less addictive. They began to promote it and sell it, that it was not just for end-of-life type pain and just cancer and so forth, that it was okay to use for a toothache or a backache. And then, you know, that's what happens. People get that prescribed for them. They get hooked, and then eventually the doctors will realize they're on it, and they'll cut them off, and then they turn to heroin. And that's when the overdoses just really escalate. So, you know, it's happened to all families across Mississippi. If you think about it, when you read an obituary, if somebody aged, say, 43 to 58, there's no, you know, extended illness uh, noted in an obituary. A lot of the times you're going to realize that's probably a, an opioid overdose. You know, I was DA in the early 90s during the crack epidemic. You know, I saw the meth epidemic come through, but I have not seen one 
that I see stretching across all racial, ethnic, financial backgrounds. It hits home with, with everyone, and so this is one we're trying to prepare for and get ahead of it. There's going to be tremendous cost to the state. What do you want to see come out of the summit? I want us to uh, have our church groups involved and citizens out there so they see this epidemic coming. They know when people are advocating for more treatment, rehabilitation, that they will speak out to their legislators and make sure that we have enough treatment beds to deal with this epidemic. And the thing that we're hoping to get through to doctors is to get them to check the prescription monitoring system. It's not mandatory that if a doctor writes an opioid, they have to check the prescription monitoring system to see if that person has gone out and, you know, is doctor shopping. And so we're trying to cut off the oversupply of opioids, educate people as to the danger of it, and then trying to get us in a position where we can treat and rehabilitate those that do get addicted. Well, Attorney General Hood, we appreciate you speaking with us about this important issue. Thank you. Thank you. The Drug Summit is July 11th through the 13th at Broadmoor Baptist Church in Madison. Coming up, you've probably heard of the school-to-prison pipeline. Hear about a program that turns that scenario around to the prison-to-college pipeline. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Your home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. Your home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Two Mississippi professors are working to change the lives course for the state's inmates through teaching education courses. The Prison to College Pipeline program gives inmates the opportunity to enroll in college-level classes to prepare for a life outside of prison. Recidivism refers to a person's relapse into criminal behavior after the person has served time. Professors Patrick Alexander from the University of Mississippi and Otis Pickett from Mississippi College are hoping to break the cycle of prison reentry starting at the state penitentiary and central Mississippi Correctional Facility. They tell us how the program got started. When I was in graduate school in North Carolina, there were over two dozen colleges and universities in that area. But there were also over half a dozen prisons. And I was kind of confused because we had these great speakers who would come in who talk about mass incarceration, people like Angela Davis and Dylan Rodriguez. It was great information. And I'm sitting in these luxurious lecture halls, you know, taking down this information. But I was trying to think about, you know, what strategies are we putting into place so that we don't have these high rates of recidivism and incarceration. And so I was part of a great program, essentially run through the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. They have a correctional educational program, and it was huge success, particularly in North Carolina. The rates were 67 percent. There's data that actually shows the recidivism rate was down to 7 percent for folks who went through that program. How did you two meet and how did you set your minds in a similar fashion to proceed with this? We met at uh, faculty orientation uh, at the University of Mississippi in 2012. And we have a great dean, Glenn Hopkins. And three times during faculty orientation, he said, if you want money to teach in the prison system, we have that here at the University of Mississippi. And he mentioned my name and I said, we're going to be friends. And as soon as I went to go up to meet 
the dean, I met Otis. He had made a beeline for me and he said, whatever you're doing with the prison system, trying to improve things, I want to be a part of that. I want to be your brother. And but what was your impetus, Dr. Yeah. Pickett, to get involved? I was actually in Durham at the Duke Divinity Summer Institute for Racial Reconciliation and that was one of the big topics. And I was one of three Mississippians in the room and they kept talking about incarceration and incarceration in Louisiana and Mississippi kept coming up and all eyes in the room kind of were like focused <laughs> on me. And I said, I don't, I'm not really doing anything. And so I came back that summer and started school in the fall and met Patrick. And I just said, right there, that's the opportunity. We've got to do something. And here's the guy who has started these programs, who has the scholarship and the vision. Would you say it's true in Mississippi that once somebody goes into prison, we just want to forget about them? Is prison in Mississippi really for rehabilitation? You're absolutely right. It's put them in a prison, lock them up, throw away the key, forget about them, not realizing that 90-something percent of these individuals will be back outside living amongst us at some time. And I would say the rehabilitation is incredibly minimal with the exception of these educational programs. And so there's just not the funding. We know that Mississippi historically has numbered two in the nation in incarceration in terms of rates behind Louisiana. It's only recently that they've been number three, according to the U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics. That's 2014. We talked to someone who was involved with the book program, providing books to prisoners, and she gave us figures that were incredible about the number of inmates who wanted to read. Dr. Pickett, what do you hear from inmates about what they want? Is there a real desire? Oh, there's a desperate desire, a desperate desire for books, a desperate desire to be heard and seen and known and for their experiences to be heard. We just need to change the narrative about how we see these people. We expanded our program into Central Mississippi Correctional Facility, and the women at Central had never had any kind of opportunities to take college classes that we know of in Mississippi history. And so, to our knowledge, that's the only college class that's ever been offered in state by state institutions. Dr. Alexander, how are you being received by prison officials? I've actually not had much difficulty at all um, working with state officials. And, and I should say, we're, we're thankful to be able to operate not at one, but two completely different facilities in different parts of the state and to have so much um, support. Dr. Pickett, does this program extend beyond the prison walls? Do they have educational or will they have educational opportunities through this program beyond prison? That's the vision and the hope. So right now, our funding just covers the teaching programs for the summer. So formally, there is not a program once you come out. And that's a huge, tremendous issue for folks coming out of prison, dealing with post-traumatic stress, dealing with a vision about their future. Dr. Alexander, what's the plan for the summer? How many courses? We've got three courses set for this summer. Uh, one will be um, at Parchman, uh, where Dr. Pickett and I have been teaching. But then there's two courses set for this summer at Central Mississippi Correctional Facility. And so... Uh, what are they in? What's the coursework? One is going to be second half U.S. history. They want to take all their core classes so when they come out, they can work on their major to earn a degree. And so we're trying to offer core classes in the core curriculum, such as American literature. And there's also going to be a course in communications. And I should note... Our students who receive passing marks in these classes are actually receiving college credit from the University of Mississippi 
and from Mississippi College and from respective institutions that are, are represented through the Prison to College Pipeline Program. What is your vision? What do you hope happens as a result, Dr. Alexander? The larger vision of the program, it's called Prison to College because we want to see... Instead of college to prison. Oh, exactly. We want to see these students at our universities. Most of the students who we teach um, will be released in one to two years. And what a statement would it be for our institutions in this state, our universities, to say, when you want to start your new path in life, start with us. We want to facilitate your continued educational growth, professional growth, in your future. What about you, Dr. Pickett? For the vision, I would like to see universities across the state have faculty that are interested in teaching. We also are going to need more funding. I mean, the University of Mississippi has been incredibly generous. The Mississippi Humanities Council has funded our work. But in order to pay the faculty to go in and teach as adjuncts, basically on top of their course loads, you'll need support. And we'll need support driving to the facilities and providing books for the students. And so we've tossed around the idea of creating some sort of institutionalized program in the state of Mississippi that would house a lot of this work. So we we want to expand across the entire state and provide opportunities for folks who are in state prisons and also in private prisons to be have an option to pursue some sort of educational opportunity while they're there. It's called the Prison to College Pipeline Program, and we've been speaking with Dr. Patrick Alexander. He's a professor of English and African-American studies at the University of Mississippi, and Dr. Otis Pickett, who is a professor of history and political science at Mississippi College. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Karen. The University of Mississippi Prison to College Pipeline Program helps imprison students who have attained a GED or possess a high school diploma transition to college coursework. For more information, contact Dr. Alexander at Ole Miss. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio at 9 o'clock. It's Deep South Dining at 10. Now you're talking and at 11. Stay tuned for Southern Remedy. And join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition. Only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Trustmark, featuring Trustmark Deposit Express, ATMs for business and personal banking. No deposit slips, no envelopes, no waiting. Most deposits made by 9 p.m. weekdays are credited that day. Details at Trustmark.com. Member F.